How you guys doing? You like Fargo? Yeah, so this is my second time to Fargo, and when I got back to Michigan after my first trip out here, everybody's like, what's Fargo like? And I think everybody thinks one of two things, the movie, or that it's under 15 feet of snow at all times. And so I said, here's my best description of Fargo, and now being here my second time and wandering around this morning, I still stand by this. Fargo is exactly like every other Midwestern city. It's just, it's like somebody grabbed both edges of it and just stretched it out. So if you look out here, the, the intersections are bigger. The, the streets are bigger. The, the sidewalks are like 15 feet off the road, which that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Midwest. So it's, it's a normal city. It's just stretched out just a little bit. So, um, so we're glad you guys made it out to Fargo. As Brett mentioned earlier, um, this is our second annual uh, network conference, and our goal is to move this around every year um, so that those of us who are part of the X29 uh, network get to experience different uh, cities and towns uh, within our our network, and that we get to uh, be involved with different people and meet new people in new cities. And so I, I want to encourage you, while you're here, get to know Fargo. Um, just wander downtown. It's a fantastic downtown area. Um, I actually, this, I'm a little jet lagged because I was in England two days ago, so I woke up at 3.30 this morning, uh, forced myself to sleep till 4.30, and then showered and walked around the city and watched the sunrise this morning. And it's a neat place to be here in Fargo. So as we were planning uh, this conference, we got together with, with what we call our network leadership team, and you'll have a chance to meet them uh, later on in the course of these days. But we talked about what is it that our network needs to hear right now? Like what is that hot button issue that if we had time to sit down with everybody, this is what we would deal with, and this is, and this is what we decided on. It is that temptation in every single one of us to believe that something is bigger than Jesus. And with each one of us, that something is going to be a little bit different. But for church planners and those who are interested in church planning and those who are, are dreaming of pastoring or, or being involved in the ministry, that there's unique temptation to believe that things are bigger than Jesus. Now, my, I don't think we are likely to deny Jesus, right? We're probably not going to be in this role or interested in planting churches if we don't believe that Jesus is uh, the God of the universe and the Savior of mankind. We're not, going to, we're not going to deny that. But functionally, in our hearts, we begin to believe that certain things are bigger than Jesus. I was at a, a conference um, a couple of weeks ago, a rural church planting conference. And one of the main session speakers at this conference, talking to a bunch of rural and small town church planners, uh, said this. He said, he said, it is God's will that you have 900 people in your church. And if you preach the word of God, and if you are filled with the spirit, and if you have a love for your city, then people will drive 150 miles to come to your church. And I said, please don't say that. I sat in the back of the room and my heart sank because I know church planners who have done all the right things. They've preached the faithful gospel of Jesus. They have loved their city or their small town and it has never grown. It has just grown maybe by a person a year or a family a year and then two families leave. And the temptation for that church planter 
is to believe that the hardness of the soil of that community is bigger than Jesus. There's a temptation to buy into the moralism of the Midwest. So last week I I was kind of flipping through my Instagram feed and there's this guy in my church who makes t-shirts. And uh, he does all these Michigan-based t-shirts and for the first time ever he actually did a Midwest t-shirt. And so I saw this and I quickly said, hey, I need one of these. I'm going to show it to you and some of you are going to be upset because your state is not on it. He didn't know. Um, all of the Midwest. But I want to show you his t-shirt. Um, and yes, and yes, North Dakota is one of the places not here. But let me just show you, let me show you his t-shirt. I know, right? But I will reprove him and begin the excommunication process when I get home. But I, I, I want to show you this t-shirt. And this is, is, is what it says. Now, if you can't read that from the back, it says at the bottom, be kind, work hard. Is that not the best motto for the Midwest, be kind, work hard. But here's the thing about be kind and work hard. First of all, it's a religion. It's a belief system in our culture that says, if I am kind and if I work hard, then I am right with the people around me and probably right with the universe. In fact, we can buy into this moralism to the point that we believe to think this is greater than Jesus. And the problem with believing this particular moralism is if we think we are hard workers and we are kind people, and if we think Christianity is about being a hard worker and a kind person, then we don't need Jesus. And so we begin to believe that our culture is bigger than Jesus. And I can tell you from experience, from being in a small church to being in a larger church, It never gets easier. The temptations are just new. If things begin to go wildly successfully in your church, the temptation in your heart is going to be to begin to believe that your gifts are greater and bigger than Jesus. Some of you are church planners. Some of you are pastors of churches that are interested in planting more churches. Some of you are potential planners. Some of you are, have been planting for a long time and you're just about ready to give up. Some of you have had wild success. Some of you have gone for the long haul and it is time to transition to something new. We're all over the place in this room and here's the bottom line. We love you. We're doing this conference because we love you and we're glad that you're here. And so in these main sessions, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very familiar passage, 1 Corinthians um, 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible, you can flip or tap your way there. And we're going to start at the very beginning and work our way straight through these uh, two chapters. And we are going to focus on our minds, our hearts, our souls being focused on Jesus and remembering that he is bigger. Now, as you're flipping to 1 Corinthians, um, you, you, you may know that there is a little bit of a scholarly debate as to how big the church was in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter. And it varies wildly. When you look at different commentators, they'll say, some will say you know, there were 50 people in the church. And there are some people that will say there were thousands of people in the church. And I think you can probably argue that is somewhere around 50 to 200 people in the church is probably what I think. But it could be anywhere in that, that range. But here's the thing, if it is between 50 and 200 people, that's encouraging to me because the median age of, or the median congregation size in Acts 29 Midwest is 200. Half of us are under 200 
Half of us are over 200. And that actually makes 1 Corinthians encouraging to me. Let me read to you a list of, the, just a quick list I was able to write down of some of the known issues in the church of Corinth in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's a few of the minor things they were dealing with as a church of around 50 to 100, 200 people. Prostitution, infighting, believers suing other believers, divisiveness, incest, homosexuality. The uh, non-married people were having sex and the married people were not having sex, which by the way is backward. Um, difficult marriages, divorce, uh, single people finding their place in the church, uh, what to, to drink, what to eat. They had crazy, out-of-control church services, and people were getting drunk on communion wine, and they were elevating spiritual gifts over unity. They were denying the resurrection of the dead. They were denying the resurrection of Jesus. They were greedy. They had false gospels, different views on how to interpret Scripture, church discipline, debates over the signs and wonders, speaking in tongues and prophecies. Um, they denied the second coming of Christ. They had church structure issues, women's roles issues, law versus grace debate, abuses of freedom, and idolatry. Are you encouraged yet? (laughs) The church of Corinth was about the size of most of our churches, and they were dealing with all of these things. Church planting, pastoring, is always hard. And in the early church, all of this stuff threatened the supremacy of Christ in the hearts of the leaders of that church. So let's begin at the very beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to just read the first nine verses, and then we'll back up and walk through them. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray and then we're going to work through that. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you today and some of us are, are hurting. Uh, some of us are at the end of our ministry rope, and some of us are at the beginning of our ministry rope. Some of us are looking for a ministry rope. We're all over the place, and so I just pray that wherever it is that we are tempted uh, to deny the supremacy of Christ, that He is bigger than what we're dealing with, that you would deal with our hearts in that place over the next two days. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Paul starts this letter with a really kind of basic salutation, but it, it, it's super rich, and it gives gospel meaning and sets the tone for this entire book. So look at the first two verses again. He says, Paul, 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he starts by saying, called um, by the will of God. And we're going to deal with the calling piece here in a second, so just put a pin in that. But called, he says, by the will of God. When someone is called to something, they're called by someone to something. And he's like, I have been called by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he mentions this dude by the name of Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes? Well, we can't be 100% sure who this guy is, but there's some contextual clues, and I'm pretty sure I know who Sosthenes is, and I'm pretty sure it has everything to do with church planting. If you have a second, second we're going to dive back to, you have a second, because I'm up here, and I'm just telling you to do it, but we jump to Acts 18, and we're going to jump there and then jump back to get a little bit of context. In Acts 18, the Apostle Paul has planted a little church in a city called Corinth. He's got a core team uh, with uh, Priscilla and Aquila on it, and eventually Silas and Timothy join him on that team, and the church plant is going really, really badly. Like, it is going super bad in in, in Corinth. And and Paul had this strategy there that he was going to use to plant the church. He would spend Sabbath with the Jews, trying to reason with them from the Scriptures. And then the rest of the week, he would step into the city and with the Greeks, and he would try to persuade them with using all kinds of different uh, methods to persuade them. And this was his strategy, and here's how it was uh, going. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And by the way, I love this description of a church planner. He was occupied with the word, testifying about Christ Jesus. You want a job description? Just put those two things down. As a church planner, he was occupied by the word, and he was testifying to Christ Jesus. This is what church planners do. And Paul had, from what I can tell in this passage, no visible fruit. Encouraged yet? Nothing. He had like no... So what he does, he actually takes his jacket off and he walks over to the Jews and he shakes his jacket at them. He basically says, I am done with you people. I'm done telling you about Jesus. I'm done trying to persuade you from the scriptures. I am done. You ever been there? There's a church planner in this room who will remain nameless. Who uh, hired one of those mailing companies to do an Easter mailer. You know those whole mailing things? And they tell you what their return on those results are going to be. They tell you, you know, if you're a church, you'll get this kind of result. If you're a business, you'll get that kind of result. So he sends out the Easter mailer to 5,000 people. And according to the statistics... Uh, he should have a return of 50 to 150 people should show up at his church based on the mailing list averages for this. So he spends his money, he works on his mail, he sends it out to 5,000 people. You know how many more people showed up as Easter services than his normal attendance? One. The return on that investment was one. It was one person. And Paul is like this. Paul's like, listen, I am occupied with the word. I am testifying to Christ Jesus. I am preaching in the synagogues. I'm going in the streets and talking to the Greeks. And no one is coming to Christ. 
So he shakes off his jacket. I'm done with you people. Verse 7, and he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. And I'm sure that's not how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. A worshiper of God. His house, check this out, was where? Right next door to the synagogue. Now the synagogue is where he had been working. He had been going there on Sabbath and then into the town the rest of the week. But he just goes next door. What is he doing? Well, he hasn't shifted his strategy. He's still occupied with the word testifying by Jesus. He just changes locations. And if you think about reaching Jews, where's the best place to reach Jews? In the synagogue. So he just is like, well, that didn't work. So I'm just going to go next door. I'm going to do a house church thing. Goes to the house next to the synagogue. Verse 8. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, if you're not paying attention, you might have missed this. Paul gives up on the Jews. He shakes his jacket at them. He says, my strategy is not working. I put together my whole church planning prospectus around this strategy, and it ain't working. And then he just goes next door to this guy's house, and it's there that who? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in which he had been preaching, persuading people by the scriptures, it's that guy becomes a Christian. When Paul is at the end of his rope, Jesus saves some people. Saves that dude. Saves his family. Saves a whole bunch of people in Corinth. What's going on? Jesus is bigger than Paul's preaching Jesus is bigger than Paul's church planting strategy. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, I know you're afraid. Don't be afraid. I am bigger than your fear. I am bigger than the opposition you're feeling. I got this. I got lots of people in the city. You just don't know it yet, and they just don't know it yet. So he stays for a year and a half, and ministry booms. He enters into a fruitful season, and many of us have been there. But fruitful seasons don't last. So for the last 17 years, every year, our church has grown in numbers, every number. Our attendance, our finances every year until this year. This is the first year that our attendance plateaued and our giving dropped. And when I began to see those numbers, something kind of pathetic went on in my heart and my soul. I began to believe that those reports were bigger than Jesus. I began to believe that our giving was bigger than Jesus, that the attendance was bigger than Jesus. And, and honestly, I love church plants, but I got pissed off at church plants because I found out where people were going. Our givers were going to church plants in our city. How dare they? 
Well, just because we stand up on stage and talk about church planning all the time, they're not supposed to actually do it. It's the young people who aren't giving anything who are supposed to go on church plants. The established families who are giving money are supposed to stay. That's how it works. That way they can go struggle. But Jesus is bigger than fruitful ministry and dipping ministry. So Paul, at this point, after a year and a half of fruitful ministry, everything blows up. Accusations start flying at Paul. This ramping ministry season comes crashing down and he gets run out of town. And as Paul is being run out of Corinth, check it out, verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. What's going on here? Well, check this out. This is amazing. One ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, got saved, so they had to put another guy in there. This guy's name is Sosthenes. And then what happens? When Paul gets run out of town, the Greeks beat Sosthenes. Why? Because they probably didn't make a distinction between the Jews and the Christians. They were running Paul out. They figured we might as well beat this guy too. He's always around this guy. Sosthenes. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we don't know that this is the same Sosthenes, but come on. Right? Come on. I mean, this, this dude, is, I think this is salvation by beating. I believe what this passage is saying is Jesus is bigger than persecution. Jesus is bigger than Paul being run out of town. Because when Paul was run out of town, I think what happened is this guy Sosthenes was like, I've seen what's been going on with this guy. And I think he talked to Crispus. That's my theory. He said, hey, you were the ruler of the synagogue. And you became one of these crazy followers of Jesus. Tell me what's going on here. And I think Sosthenes ended up staying and becoming one of the leaders of the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, do not miss this part of the passage, especially if you're a church planner. Whose church did he just say it was? Was it Paul's church? Was it the Corinthians' church? Was it Sosthenes' church? It was God's church. One of my pet peeves And I've actually modified this pet peeve. I used to have this pet peeve of anybody who would say my church. They never liked the phrase. And I repent of that. I don't like it when a pastor says it. I'm great when somebody in a congregation says my church because there's an ownership and a buy-in to the church when they say that. What I don't like is when the pastor says it because then he's got an ownership and a buy-in. He's like, this is mine. This is my church. These are my elders. This is my congregation. No, it's God's. It's God's church. And so Paul then drills down into who this church is. And he says this, It is those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are sanctified in the church. Now, I'm going to oversimplify this, and those of you who are theological wonks can yell at me later. But a quick and dirty Definition of sanctification is this. Those who are becoming who they already are. That's good enough. At least for this conversation. 
Those who are becoming who they already are. He says, I am, this is the church. Those who are becoming who they already are. A bunch of jacked up people who are just gone from being a jacked up sinner to being a jacked up saint. Those who are being made perfect. I love this phrase, by the way. What does he call them? He says they are called to something. What are they called to? He was called to be an apostle. What is everybody else there called to be? A saint. By the way, do you realize that that is Paul's most, it's it's the description of Christians that he likes the most. He uses it 60 times. Saint. You can put it on your email signature. Don't. But you could. The people around you right now, they're all saints. Except Trike. I mean, just look around in this room. Is filled with like, well, we'll see. Um, work in progress. A, a jacked up saint. We are jacked up saints. All Christians in all churches of all time. What does he say? To the church of God that is in accordance to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of something way bigger. Here in the Midwest alone, we've got 87 churches in X-ray 9, and that makes us a very, very dinky movement. I mean, we've got 11 states. I mean, and, and North Dakota alone, right, is a massive place. There's only 87 of us. We've got 17 in the pipeline, and that's amazing, but it's also like big whoop. We're a tiny little movement in what God is doing around the world. Yes, we have churches in Chicago, in Detroit, in Minneapolis, in Indiana, in Indy, and Fargo, in Iron Mountain, in Madison, in Columbia, in Sioux Falls, and Galena. And they're all filled with jacked up saints. But we're just a tiny drop in the bucket. Paul says to the church of God who is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another one of my pet peeves, and this will be my last one for the day. Another one of my pet peeves is when Christians talk smack about other churches. Can we stop? In fact, I think when we have our church planting strategy, we should be known for two things. And they're going to feel counterintuitive. But when we get ready to plant a church, we should look at that community that we're going to and say, are there other wonderful gospel-centered churches preaching the, the, faithfully the message of Jesus? I'm not going to plant right next to them. I'm going to give us a little space. Why not? They're doing a great thing. And then second thing I want to do is when another church planter comes to me and say, can I plant next door? I want to say, come, baby. I want to roll out the welcome mat. How great would it be if that's what we we're known for? We are intentionally not trying to compete because other churches are not our competition. You preach the gospel of Jesus and I'm in with you. The church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now you're going to hate this if you're an American. When you read the Bible, you've got to stop reading you as a singular word. And this, by the way, it, we, we in, in, in the Midwest, we, we got this. 
It's like the, mid, in the upper peninsula of Michigan and the deep south of the United States are the only ones who have the right language for this. Because in the deep south, they got y'all. And then the, in the deep, deep south, they got all y'all. And in the upper peninsula of Michigan, we've got use guys. We actually have language for this. In fact, you could go through the vast majority of the New Testament and just strike the word you and write use guys. Because that's who he's talking to. So I want to reread this passage. He says, I give thanks to my God always for use guys. Because of the grace of God that was given to you skies in Christ Jesus. That in every way you skies were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was, I went a Scottish, didn't I? <laughs> was confirmed among you guys. Paul is thankful for all the Christians in Corinth. Now wait, stop for a second. He had Christians going to see prostitutes. He had Christians who were suing other Christians. He had Christians who were being divisive. He had a Christian dude who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. He had gay Christians in that church. He had Christians who were getting drunk on communion wine. Now, one of a couple things is going on. Paul is a lying, manipulative jerk. Or he really loves these people, even as they're struggling. But what does Paul understand? Jesus is bigger than our sinful issues. Check this out. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you skies in Christ Jesus. Notice what he's thankful for. The grace of God. He's thankful that this church was filled with people who were jacked up sinners who are now jacked up saints. Listen to this description a couple chapters later. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you guys. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What is he saying? He says, you used to identify as all of these things. You were all of these things, but not anymore. As sanctified followers of Jesus, you have a new identity. And yet, don't miss this, some of them were still living in light of their old identities. They were still struggling with those. And Paul says to them, I am thankful for you. I love you because of God's love, because of God's grace, because of God's acceptance of you in Christ Jesus. I love you and I offer you grace and I accept you. Here's what I know. Your church is filled with people who are divisive. You've got some homosexuality going on in your church. You've got some married people who are not sleeping with their spouse. You've got some single people who are sleeping around. You've got divorce issues and greed issues and abuse of freedom issues and idolatry issues. And some of the people struggling with that stuff is you. And in Christ, 
You are loved and accepted. And we are thankful for you. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5. That in every way you will be enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Look at this. He says you were, past tense, you were enriched in speech and knowledge. And if you know the history of Acts 29 at all, you know what we have historically been known for is kind of being doctrine wonks. Knowledge here is talking about having good doctrine. It's a strength of Acts 29 in a lot of ways, but it's a weakness when we elevate that over Jesus. When we say our good doctrine is bigger than Jesus. What he says is you were enriched. You were enriched in all speech and knowledge. That's what you were. And he says, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys are not lacking in any gift. I had someone bring this to me once and say, hey, this passage says I'm not lacking in any spiritual gift. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a use guys passage. You guys are not lacking in any spiritual gift. And I believe that this means the universal church. And I believe that this means your church. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift you need for this life stage you are in right now as a church. It may be hard to believe, but check out the thread here. He says, you have good doctrine. You were enriched in speech and knowledge so that you can be certain that you guys lack no spiritual gift. You have what you need for your church plan. It's not a feelings issue. It's a truth issue. Verse 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He has to say Jesus many times so we get it. Over and over and over. Because of Christ, you guys were enriched in speech and doctrine. Because of Christ, you guys don't lack any spiritual gift. Because of Christ, you guys can know that He will sustain you. You can know that Jesus will present you guiltless. God is faithful by whom you were called to what? To plant your church? <laughs> no, nothing so trivial as your church. You were called to be saints along with all who follow Jesus in all churches of all time. You were called into the fellowship of Christ, which means Jesus is bigger. Jesus is bigger than your weakness. Jesus is bigger than your sin. Jesus is bigger than your elder team. Jesus is bigger than your culture. Jesus is bigger than the world. Jesus is bigger than your temptations. Jesus is bigger than your discouragement. Jesus is bigger than your failure. Jesus is bigger than your success. Jesus is bigger than your large church. Jesus is bigger than your small church. Jesus is bigger than your declining church. Jesus is bigger. I don't know what you dragged in with you today, but I think you dragged something. Um, and so this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute or so and I want you to quietly reflect on whatever it may be that you are right now, in this moment, and it may change from second to second, but what are you tempted to believe is bigger than Jesus? Just think about it. And as soon as you figured out what it is, this might be a little old school Baptist here, with all eyes closed and all heads bowed. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up. 
Once you've figured out what it is that you're tempted to believe is bigger than Jesus, I want you to stand up. And then at the, when we're standing, or a good chunk of us are, I'm going to pray this passage, and then we're going to sing some more and settle our hearts. So go ahead and think about that for a second. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.